What up, what up, what up? Standing 10 toes down, this is Luke Cooper, and this is Say It in the Room, a weekly podcast where we talk about how to make every room in tech more inclusive for anyone that does not have white male privilege. I'm a former MA lawyer and tech founder with $70 million of all cash exits, including my last exit, Fixed, a web and mobile repair app with hundreds of thousands of customers and now available in every T-Mobile store in the world. It was an overnight success eight years in the making, and my Mud to Magic platform is designed to make sure genius in whatever hood it is does not go undiscovered. To learn more about our platform, this episode, and my upcoming book, Mud to Magic, go to mudtomagicbook.com. Today, I'm beyond excited to welcome General Martin Dempsey to the show to talk about leadership and the government's role in data privacy. He's the 18th chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, serving under the first black president, Barack Obama. He's also the chair of USA Basketball and a professor at Duke University. Welcome, General Dempsey. Before we dive into those topics, it'd be great for you to give your own background and talk a little bit about you know, what motivates you today. Well, that's a great question. I, uh, I, you know, I came into the army through West Point, and I entered West Point in 1970. And, I, you know, to be honest, I did so reluctantly. Uh, it was a rough time in the country, at, you know, and kind of the wind down of Vietnam, and still a draft army. Um, so when I say I came in reluctantly, fundamentally, I came in because my mother probably knew better than me, and and saw the opportunity that West Point would provide. And, you know, she talked me into it, uh, burst into tears. And once that happened, I knew I was on the way to West Point. So <clears throat> that's how I got there. Um, through the years had, you know, a great many mentors, you know, men like you, men and women. And uh, they always put me in a position where I, you know, I could, I could succeed, but also fail. And in those failures helped me grow more so than even in the successes, as you know, it's often the case. And then um, I, and you know, by happenstance or by fate or by design, I ended up in the Middle East uh, just before the Iraq war started. I was working in Saudi Arabia, building up their National Guard. And the chief staff of the army at the time, who was a mentor, uh, told me that he perceived we didn't have much expertise in the Arab and, and Muslim world. And so he sent me over there. And two years later, we end up in, you know, quite a number of different engagements over there. And so, you know, I had that expertise and ended up spending about seven out of the 10 years in that decade in, in and around the Middle East. Um, that kind of led to my selection to be the leader of our training and doctrine, our, our really our education component of the army. And then a brief stint um, uh, just before that, actually, at Central Command, Chief of Staff of the Army for a whole 149 days, and then President Obama, um, at the recommendation of Secretary Bob Gates, um, nominated me to the Congress as the chairman. And I spent four years as the, the principal military advisor to the President of the United States. It was a real honor. Absolutely. I, I mean, just just the, the, the learning that you, you have to engage in by being deployed in so many discrete missions. Um, like, how did you do that? How did you, they, they dropped you in, in Saudi Arabia, they dropped you in, in the Middle East, and 
you know, now you've got to like, you know, formulate, you know, a, a, a position, right. On, on how to, how to think about that region. Like, how did you like get your bearings so quickly? Well, the interesting thing was that the, when the chief staff of the army sent me over there, he told me I had two missions and one was more important than the other. The, the one mission was to build up a, a military force inside the kingdom so they could protect themselves. But he said, that's not the most important thing. He said, you know, you're, you need to build relationships. You need to learn about, you know, this this part of the world. You need to you need to begin to understand uh, the Muslim faith and, you know, what you know, what, because uh, this is right after 9-11, you know, whether, you know, answer the question for yourself, is is the Muslim faith part of the problem or is it part of the solution? And I concluded it was actually part of the solution, which, you know, many people were, it, they were hard pressed to understand that at the time. Um, but he really sent me over there to learn, which I thought was a, um, was very, very kind of prescient and on his part and, and a real benefit to me. Yeah, that's great. That's great. Let, let's just dive into some. We'll we'll talk about leadership questions first, and then we'll reverse order, and then and then talk about privacy. You know, one one of my uh, you know sort of favorite heroes from World War II. I'm sorry, World War II from the Civil War. Ulysses uh, <coughs> Grant, right? He, mm -hmm. I think he was just an incredible uh, you know war mind, you know logistics thinker, um, creative also. Um, but one of the most interesting things about him, and I'm sure you could illuminate this more for our audience, is his ability to lead a diverse group of, of soldiers, right? And, and I think when you're starting a company, when you're building anything, um, you know, you don't always get to pick, you know, your your the people that you want on the team, you know, uh, or, or have access to to the, you know, sort of the, the best and brightest. You have you have access to the pieces that are around you, and you've got to groom them, develop them, and they all come from different cultures. And he didn't seem to do that well. You know, two questions. How did you do that during your career? And like, what do you think are some of the lessons from, you know, sort of his leadership style? Which I, 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 I suppose that you garnered some of those same um, principles as well. Uh, and, and how would you apply them to, you know, sort of a startup company or any sort of fast growing company? Yeah. As it turns out, Ulysses S. Grant is my uh, personal favorite general of the Civil War by a wide margin. You know, on the on the Union side, President Lincoln cycled through, you know, senior leaders at a pretty significant rate. I think and I think what um, what happened when he found Ulysses S. Grant was he found a man who um, didn't care what happened in Washington, D.C., honestly. He he didn't have any aspirations to be you know, he ended up, of course, being a president, but it's not something he aspired to do. He, he he did it because he thought the country needed his leadership when he did it. But he also, besides having incredible drive, I mean, he was not one to, you know, let his foot off the accelerator. Uh, and but besides that, I think better than um, almost anyone in that era, he he valued competence, but he had a keen eye for character. And and so what I took from that loop when I tried to apply my own leadership and tried to groom the you know the generation of leaders behind me, is I remembered you know I never let myself forget is a better way to put it um, that although we were immersed in two conflicts at the time Iraq and Afghanistan, um, and although clearly you we all needed to have men and women who could get the job done who could who were competent enough in their skill that they could you know, accomplish their missions. We also wanted to 
both in the conflict, but especially out of it, come out with a sense that we had been true to our profession and the traits and attributes and qualities and character that we try, the way we try to define ourselves. And so um, in, in grooming and selecting the generation behind me, I valued equally competence. Actually, that's not true. I, I valued both competence and character. But truth be told, I valued character more because we had we were developing all kinds of confidence in in that conflict, but we weren't necessarily across the board, you know, universally developing character. And so that was kind of the for me, it was the the uh, no seeing that these conflicts would were waning and would eventually you know end. I wanted to make sure we had in place a group of men and women who would lead the military with character. That was very important. Uh, that's such a great point. Uh, General Dempsey, uh, specifically the point about character. You know, it, it doesn't always work out so so seamlessly, as you know, warriors. It's very dirty. Building a company uh, that, that is doing a thing that wasn't ever done before is very very dirty and difficult as well. Um, but but building characters is is not always sort of a straightforward kind of uh, right. thing. And so when I think about um, other kinds of successful generals that have done that, two others come to mind that. I don't know how far back your history goes, but um, you know Toussaint Louverture and, and Haiti uh, tr trying to free the French farmers and slaves in Haiti. Uh, you know he was successful in pulling together a lot of different kinds of people. Um, and um, and another one from Carthage, uh, named Han Hannibal, uh, who used elephants to cross the, the the Swiss Alps. You know, and obviously as he conquered and, and um, controlled large regions of, of of different countries, he would take those new soldiers and, and bring them into his, into his, uh, into his, um, into his, um, his, his, uh, his ranks. And so how, how, how do you do that? Right? Like that's a very difficult thing. Um, and I've, I've seen it now across, you know, multiple startups, but build essentially building culture in a way that gets mm -hmm. everyone sort of on the same page. How exactly do you, did you do that? Are there some practical steps, tips that you could provide? Yeah, I think there are. And I, I'd probably go back to Alexander the Great. One of my favorite quotes, actually, is Alexander the Great, who said, upon the, uh, upon the uh, conduct of each depends the fate of all. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you think about it, that's what you want in an organization, I think, whether it's a military organization or anyone else. You want every individual to feel ownership uh, in in the in the in the enterprise, and um, Alexander clearly always fought outnumbered, and was always to persuade his soldiers that his warriors that you know that you know we don't need any any anyone trying to be the champion. We need to be champions for each other and and take care of the man or woman to our left, not women in those days, of course, but today, man and women to our left and right. I think that's the special sauce of the military, by the way, Luke, is not, you know, we're not, our equipment is certainly, um, you know, it's, it's better than most in the world. But I think what we've managed to inculcate into our formations is this sense of, of belonging and purpose and ownership and trust. And, you know, look, let's face it, that that's harder today when, you know, a lot of what what's we're we're inundated with information and misinformation and and literally it's inescapable our leaders are under much more scrutiny than i ever was and um and generally 
what all of that does is highlight our differences. I don't know about that though, General, General Dempsey. You, you were sitting <laughs> next to a black president the first. <laughs> yeah. I should I should tell you one of the uh, let me tell you, can I tell you a quick story yeah, about absolutely. when absolutely when I became, you know, it's not often that you get to see it into the heart of someone at that level, even if you're working with them every day. Because, you know, uh, political figures by their nature have to be a bit guarded about about things or, or they'll be exploited in, in social media. But it was the um, farewell ceremony for Secretary Leon Panetta. And the army, well, not the army, the military was honoring him with a parade. And one of the things that we do is in those kind of um, parades is we take the person to be honored from the dais, you've seen it, and the commander of troops um, walks them down the front side of the formation of troops and then around the back and then back to the dais. And it's an honor for them. They call it trooping the line. Well, just before he went out to troop the line, the narrator was reading Panetta's biography. And he mentioned that he was, you know, a uh, the son of immigrants from Italy and who came here and, and opened a walnut farm in California. And, and you know, it was a, a really heartwarming story about everything he had done, you know, as the as a first generation American, <clears throat> uh, Italian American. And while he was walking away, I was kind of ruminating, which is a polite way of saying daydreaming. And all of a sudden, um, there President Obama was on the far right chair. I was in the far left chair. Panetta had just vacated the middle chair. And I, I could sense the president leaning toward me, which was unsettling, actually, because I'm, I'm thinking, my goodness, you know, what's the, what, what could possibly be happening that the president needs to you know, talk to me right now? But you know what he said? He said, can you believe the three of us are here? Wow. And he didn't say he didn't say anything else. He leaned wow. back. But he knew because. I had been joking with him about my Irish American heritage. He, of course, you know, as, as an African American heritage and Leon Panetta, Italian American. And what he was saying literally was this is only in this country could the three of us be sitting here running our national security apparatus. And I thought, you know what? I, I really, I, I, I was so appreciative of that glimpse into his, you know, him, his, his real persona. And, um, and I told him that afterwards. I said, you know, in a lot of ways, that changed our relationship. Wow. Wow. That's an incredible story. I mean, and just think about like the, the incredible leadership dynamic there of, of sharing the stage, right? Like that just tells you the kind of person that he is and, and, and why he's yeah. like you. I mean, because, I mean, obviously he could stand there and say, well, I'm the first black president. This is amazing. I can't believe I'm here. But yeah. he chooses that in that moment to say, we are here. Right? Yeah. Great. yeah. That's a great point. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd love to maybe pan over to uh, some questions around data privacy, you yeah. know, and 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 so uh, maybe take some of those questions in the context of leadership, right? Like Facebook and Twitter and other organizations are experiencing a lot of these challenges today because you know, um, as as consumers and everyday citizens, we want more control over the information that we put out in the right. world and we get back. We want more information over our personal data. More, more control over our personal data. We want more access to data. I mean, you see this this burgeoning, you know, sort of, um, you know, e event happening around, you know, with the, the spawn of, of uh, Web three, with um, with you know NFTs and and blockchain 
you know, I, I would argue that a lot of that is coming out of the desire for, you know, um, autonomy, right? Um, and so, or autonomous exchanges of information. Um, how do you think about, like, you know, leadership in a time that requires such high, you know, standards around data privacy? Um, and what's, is there a role for the government to play here um, beyond the one that we are today? Um, yeah, yeah, feel free to take those questions, however. It's, yeah, it's, it, they're so important. And I did, uh, even in my time, which of course now is six years, well, if you count, that's the end of my time, but you know, for, so 10 years ago is when I became chairman. And um, you know, we were grappling even then uh, in the aftermath of uh, when the Koreans hacked into Sony. And you know, there was, there was, even back then, there were, there were glimpses of the future in terms of what, you know, what could happen. And the question that, that always came up was um, some equal measure of what can the government do, and, but equally, what should it do? And it was on the should part that, you know, frankly, we, we stumbled a bit. Um, I'll give you one example. We, in 2012, myself, the commander of Cyber Command, um, a, a couple of the senior civilians from the Department of Defense, a couple of the senior civilians from the National Security Agency and Cyber Command, went over to the Senate and offered to the entire Senate, not just the, the Senate Armed Services Committee, a table, a classified tabletop exercise that laid out what could happen, that, that in fact would probably would happen, um, made the case we were, this was in our capacity as advisors, you know, we, that's what the military does to our civilian leaders is we advise. And we were advising them that what we really needed if we hope to make the country safer from, especially from foreign intrusion, was um, standards, uh, some, some articulation of cyber standards and some articulation of cyber information sharing. Now, you would think um, it would have been entirely persuasive and we did think that we thought we were very persuasive. But of course, we weren't the ones that had to then in turn deal with for example, the Chamber of Commerce, who saw the argument for um, cyber standards as a very costly, uh, what something that could be very costly to corporate America if if the central government established cyber standards, and then on the side of the cyber sharing of information, for example, something as simple as you know, if Bank of America gets attacked, we would like them there to be a, a requirement that they report it. And in a timely enough fashion that we could at least learn about the signature. And if we had some capability, we could offer it, you know, but it would have to be accepted. You know, all of those issues were banged around. And I think, as I remember, I think we even had Kevin Mandio with us, who, as you know, remains one of the great cybersecurity minds. But even then, he was just starting his, you know, his work on that. And we honestly, we, we, it was a swing and a miss completely. And it was a swing and a miss because, even then, and that's 10 years ago, there was a, a, a kind of an unhealthy and eventually fruitless debate about the balance between security and privacy. And the balance, there was no balance. It was clearly that at that point in time, um, privacy was what, what dominated the day, even if we you know, acknowledged that we were going to take the risk of losing some security. To be honest, we've made some progress on the government side. So the government it does surveil, uh, you know, you, you know, military missions can generally be described as reconnaissance, offense, or defense. 
That's it. There's three kinds of military missions. You're out there re doing a, re a reconnaissance or you're defending or you're attacking. So we have plenty of access now to our ability to conduct reconnaissance. And, and through that reconnaissance, we can identify signatures of malign actors of, you know, whatever it is that people are trying to put into our system. But we really have no authority and don't seek it to do anything about it, except for the, the enterprise of DOD networks. We do defend those. We also report um, and share information on signatures, but we really have no authority um, to do anything about defending corporate America or academia or actually anything else other than the DOD. Should we? I don't know, that's the question, right? Because to do that, you've gotta have access that then begins to rub uncomfortably against privacy. And, and goodness knows, I mean, we've got all kinds of other issues right now where we're trying to decide on the, the role of the federal government, the role of state governments, the role of local governments. And, and so this would just be lost in that maelstrom, I think. But that's where we are today. And, um, you know, I think the, uh, you know, there's an, there's an analogous case to be made that, well, so I think we're a little behind, maybe a lot behind in cybersecurity. It feels like we are anyway. I also think we've we've not been able to have um, a robust enough conversation about space. And you may have seen that this earlier this week, the Russians shot down or not shot down, but destroyed one of their own um, expired satellites with an anti-satellite mission ground launch, which which spewed enormous debris fields around low low orbit Earth, which has a which is a problem. But it also demonstrates that Russia is not living up to the tacit agreement we have to keep space from becoming militarized. Those we got to have those conversations, and um, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of other things going on, but that won't wait. Yeah, that, that's such a great point. I mean, that, that's the leadership germ in all of this, right? Like when when things break down and you begin to see like your your co cooperative partners doing things that are outside of, you know, sort of your, you know, your tacit agreement that you have, do you change your position? And when do you change your position if you, if you must, right? Those are all great questions. Who, who's doing it right today, General Dempsey? Like when you think about, you know, sort of company leadership, you know, we'll, we'll leave the current administration alone and certainly the last administration, I'm sure you've got lots of um, uh, thoughts. <laughs> Just leave it there. But, um, you know, who's doing it right in the context of, of company building or, even higher levels of, of, of government, um, if, you, if you could opine. Yeah, I don't know enough to be articulate about that, Luke. But what I will say, which kind of half gets at an answer to the question is, my experience, um, even when I was serving, but even more so now that I'm out and you know still trying to keep my hand in different leadership issues, I think the most successful, let's call them enterprises, are where there can be a public-private partnership because, you know, the government brings a certain um, discipline. It brings policy and regulation. You know, one of the reasons that, that international partners actually like to buy U.S. equipment is they actually know that because of all the federal acquisition regulations and, and trade regulations, they're going to get what they, what they pay for. You know, they're not going to in the last minute be, you know, be, be held up for more money or they're not going to get, you know, half of what they actually contracted for. There are the, the, our government brings integrity to the process. So that's really valuable. And 
And on the private side, and, and by the way, the, the government, despite our efforts, despite sometimes our narrative, we're, but we're not as agile as the private sector. We can't be as agile. And, and I'm not even sure we should be as agile, although we talk about it all the time. And so I think where I've seen you know, the most productive partnerships, it's public-private partnerships. And you ask where that can and should work. And my answer is, I really believe there are probably four, maybe more, but four prominent issues confronting our country, five, let's make it five, that cannot be solved by, we can't solve them ourselves. It's, mm-hmm. it's not possible. Health, mm-hmm. evidence, the pandemic, you know, global health is a real thing. Um, I also believe the same thing about national security. You know, no one country can protect itself and its interests against the, the variety of threats that we find out there. Climate, and you know, what, you know, you know the, the, the narratives and counter narratives, but the point is it's not, those problems don't start and stop at a country's borders. Migration, my, migration's a real thing. And, you know, I, I tell people when I was born, the population of the world was about just under 3 billion. And today it's it's just under eight billion. Yeah. So there's five billion more people out there trying to muck things up. And they and a lot of times we succeed. So, you know, climate and migration and national security and health clearly cannot be solved um, by any one individual, any one country. Any, it's just impossible. And then the, the one I would add to that, because it's the thing we're talking about, is cyber. Yeah. Because cyber is completely borderless. You know that. You know, we might be attacked by some malign actor and the server might it might initiate from one country, but it's or not initiate. It might be evident from one country, but it could very well not be initiated from there or something could be planted and and actually prevent us from backtracking. it. So I just think greater cooperation on cyber between um, public and partner in this country, I mean, public and private, but as well globally is really the only answer, I think. No, it's a, it's a great it's a great answer. I mean, I would actually add a seventh to that or a sixth to that, if I would. Uh, maybe racial, you know, sort of uh, inequality um, and, and some of the things that we see happening yeah. today. You know, because I I think that is our way. When when I think about culture and character, you know, the culture and character of this country is is changing rapidly, and the more people that we can sort of adapt to, you know, sort of a, a you know a, a fair, equitable culture, I think. Yeah. The better off we'll be. So yeah, no, those are all, all great points. Um, who's your favorite basketball player? As we wind down. Well, uh, you know, if I were to answer that, the uh, I would get <laughs> myself in hot water. Chairman of, of USA Basketball. Well, the next time I tried to accumulate a team, to, you know, that somebody'd say, "Well, why don't you go to get all your favorites?" You know, um, I will tell you. I'll answer that question. Now. Sue Bird. Who's Sue that? Bird. Sue Bird. Oh, Sue Bird. Yes. 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 She is. Uh, and, and I say that because, um, you know, besides her, uh, ap- her, her absolute mind numbing ability to play at that level at 42, you know, she's and she's won five gold medals. Um, but I'll tell you what, she also back to character. When you see her interact with that team, um, it is the it's the definition of leadership. And then, as you know, she has a great um, affinity and passion for social justice. And I just think she's exactly what we want to represent our country because, and by the way, we, she's not a, thankfully, she's not one of, she's one of many that actually do that. But she, 
just turns out to be the best at it and probably the one who maybe was the most groundbreaking in terms of, of basketball. Wow, great, great response. And last question, what was your muddiest moment and was, what was your most magical moment over, over your you know, Yeah, I, uh, mud, mud, let me, so if I could, um, let's say, let's equate mud momentarily with difficult, right? Absolutely. Uh, and, you know, I mean, look, life is hard, so there's been plenty of difficult moments. But clearly, as a military leader, your most difficult moments are when you're, you know, when you're in a combat environment and you're taking casualties. And and you're the leader, and and you know, look, you're gonna take casualties in a combat zone because you know, as the saying goes, the enemy gets a vote, and we're not perfect. And so, you know, figuring, you know, thinking through how to keep um, the men and women entrusted to your care, because that's what they are—they're entrusted to your care. How to keep them, you know, strong and resolved and confident. And that the sense of belonging permeates the organization, the sense of purpose, trust, you know, trust is the coin of the realm for the military, as you well know. And to keep that trust, you know, valid, it's a lot of work. So, you know, that is the one, you know, where you have to really make it matter, as I describe it. So those are the muddy moments, uh, muddy, but important. And then, you know, my most magical moment, um, I think probably. Um, you know, a magical moment, I would, you know, probably think about that in terms of, you know, accomplishing something that you you actually wanted to accomplish and and in, and in the way you wanted to accomplish it. And for me, um, especially now, uh, it's about taking uh, a look back at how my protégés have oh. have done the job that they need. You know, did they become the kind of leaders I thought we needed? And of course, uh, I'm blessed and happy to say that they did, and that um, you know I think that they, they're doing the job I would have liked to have done myself. And so, that's kind of magic for me. Is the, you know the bigger my you know my tree of proteges grows, the better I like it. Absolutely, absolutely. I I, I would love to have been one of those proteges. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> no, I, thank you so much for being with us today, General Dempsey. I, I really appreciate your responses. Um, you are uh, in every way uh, an admirable class act. Uh, very happy to have you here today. Um, and uh, thanks for being with us. Thanks, Luke. And I, I, I love that description. I, I, I'm a little too humble to accept it, but I do appreciate it. <laughs> oh, stop, man. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Say It in the Room podcast. I'm your host, Luke Cooper. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support, please share it with others. To catch up with me, please follow me on Twitter at Ready, Set, Grind or catch me on LinkedIn under Luke Cooper Baltimore. That's all for this week. See you next time.